Well, I'm going to say it's, uh, it's great to have you back on the, the show, Greg. We've done an episode before for everyone listening. And uh, I always look forward to chatting with you and, and getting some insights into um, what you do at Whistle. So welcome back. Perfect. Yeah, thanks, Matt. So we've, we've earmarked about an hour here to talk on our carriage and there's a lot to get into, but you're actually in the middle of a, a rebuild right now. You've got a D7E, I think you sent me a photo of in the shop. That's correct. Yeah, that's correct. Um, very high art machine. I think it was 21,000 hours on it. Uh, original, except for the stator, which we are rebuilding as well. Uh, that was a big unanswered for finning was what it's going to cost to nobody's taking one this long on a D7E now. So they're doing their best to, to refresh it, to put in this machine when it goes back to work. And then of course, uh, fresh undercarriage, track frames, track guards, rollers, idlers, uh, you know, rebuild the track frames. I think what a lot of people don't understand is, you know, we always used to think, hey, let's try to get the most money out of that undercarriage that we could and and uh, and run it out till the track bolts or the pad bolts were taller than your grousers, but not realizing now you're wiping out, you know, other uh, mounting services and, and areas of the track frames that are costing us more money than what you're actually saving by not changing your undercarriage out when you start thinking, you know, just because there's a grouser height doesn't mean that that uh, to run it another thousand hours, right? <laughs> well, that machine came out of uh, the landfill division, and then disclaimer for those listening: that's actually that division of Whistle was recently sold uh, to E360S. So, but again, big congratulations uh, to you guys there for that accomplishment. Yeah, thanks. We'll miss the we'll miss the undercarriage or the undercarriage the uh, the uh, landfill team, um, they actually were probably the highest uh, users of undercarriage for us because of the environment that's in. I think I've only seen one more toxic or not toxic, I guess, abrasive environment, and that would be the oil sands, um, just with the, you know, the sand and, and how the things work up there. But trash or MSW, municipal solid waste, is very, very hard on undercarriage. Well, while we're talking about it, why is it so hard? Like compared to a machine... A comparable machine in the earthworks uh, a division. Why is landfill so hard on undercarriage? Well, I think a few things is that the material that's in an undercarriage, uh, MSW packs everything from, even though we say we recycle, a lot of things get hidden in the garbage. So you get everything from concrete to cable to, you know, mattresses is a big thing, uh, wire wrap, things like that. But it, it's just super abrasive. And then the other thing is that uh, with dirt, you're not always halfway up the track frames in in material right it's usually underneath your tracks and it gets a little bit into your rollers and stuff because dirt doesn't flow like like water or mud would but um msw you're always right to the belly pads right so you're always halfway up track frames there's all kinds of different little bits like i said uh, wires from mattresses to you name it can get into all these nooks and crannies and create wear in different spots where we wouldn't see it on a normal earth moving machine so that D7E went 21,000 hours, obviously on the main components, the engine and the transmission, which is electric. But what about the undercarriage? Was that the first time it's been uh, done? The undercarriage average life in the landfill, um, you're looking at, if we get 4,000 to 4,500 hours of use in the, in the landfill group, um, or they would, that's a good number. Uh, you know, we've seen it as low as 2,800 to 3,000 hours and average in the field is between 48 to We've seen as high as 6,000 hours in our earthworks division, right? And, and you know what? It relies on an operator, too. If you have a, a green operator that does a lot of, uh, you know, sharp turns, quick stop and starts, uh, high speed, 
Uh, you know, high speed in reverse is another big one. Um, that that just takes the undercarriage right out there, uh, almost immediately. So if you're not um, if you're not attaining the production numbers that you know that would pay for the the extreme undercarriage wear, then you know you're not really gaining anything. The operator might think he's doing better. He's definitely getting off the lift quicker, so he can go home home on a Friday night. <laughs> But uh, he's not helping the group out at all. By, uh, yeah, and they might think they are. So, again, I think in the last podcast, we talked about education. and Education right down to your operator level. And, you know, why did we lock third gear out of, of reverse? Well, it's not because we, you know, safety for one thing, but a big part of it is, is wear on components. Yeah, and that's a huge piece, like like we discussed last time, educating people and showing them, giving them the, the reason, like the, the facts or the metrics on why something is the way it is and why we do it a certain way. But looking at a machine uh, overall, or even a fleet uh, at a glance, where does undercarriage uh, fit into that equation uh, with the exclusion of fuel prices now, as we discussed earlier? Um, you know, it, I'm going to pull up a rate right now just to just to compare what we would see for an undercarriage cost on a dozer versus what you would, you know, versus fuel or your regular repairs. And what we put in there per hour in regards to that. And we'll pull up a D70 just because uh, that's what we're talking about. And it goes back to knowing your costs, right? Mac, if you don't know what you're spending on stuff and you don't know what kind of hours you're getting out of it, you're setting yourself up to fail. So, for instance, a D70, you know, you're probably over a, a term of of uh, 10,000 hours, right? You're probably going to run about a $20 an hour uh, cost for for ownership so that includes your insurance your taxes and and you know the price of the machine and depreciation and an undercarriage and so for a total rate of say just for uh for argument's sake say our rates 90 dollars an hour internally with fuel um, no operator so that's just uh all your operating costs all your repairs at 20 liters an hour um oh i should actually up I should uh, change my fuel rate to today's fuel rate, and then that'll really give us a real scare, won't it? Yeah, that's 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 why I said excluding the fuel rate. What is where does undercarriage fit in? Because that's yeah. one of the wild cards we're, we're experiencing. Everyone's experiencing, frankly. So right now, you know what? Say with a fuel rate at a dollar seventy-five, thirty-five dollars an hour of that rate is just for fuel, right? Yeah. Um, we said twenty dollars an hour of that rate is just for owning it. Well, undercarriage. If you if you attain say forty five hundred hours on your undercarriage, that's ten dollars an hour at forty five thousand dollars for an undercarriage, and that's what what your average undercarriage would cost for a machine that that size. So you're looking at easily a third of your price or a quarter of your rate. Uh, yeah, about a third of your rate would be undercarriage, and that's a best case scenario, right? Um, that undercarriage, we're guessing it's going to get 4,500 kilometers because we all want to, or my hours on it. But uh, will it attain that? It might only attain 4,000. You know, if it attains 3,500, you're jumped up to $13 an hour on that undercarriage, right? So um, very, very high cost. And the other thing about an undercarriage is once it's wore out, if you don't have a replacement for it, you know, well, I guess what? Your machine's parked because... It's like putting uh, elastic bands on there. They're just going to break every day. Um, and undercarriage now is hard to come by. It's then you know we used to be readily available, sitting on somebody's shelf. 
and the supplier would have it to you within, you know, three to, to seven days. We're seeing three weeks, maybe four weeks now to, to get certain undercarriages. Yeah. Lead time on, on getting any part nowadays is, is quite, uh, quite shocking to, uh, yeah, the, the untrained eye. It's going to be a real challenge this year. And there's no doubt about it. We're, um, putting our thumb in the air in a, in a sense of forecasting because we don't know where pricing is going to be, um, uh, for all kinds of parts right down to your oil filter, because I don't think we've truly seen the supply chain issues with the, the price of fuel just yet. So perhaps we should set a, a baseline before we talk about uh, some of the good habits, bad habits, some of the things that cause premature wear. What does normal wear on undercarriage look like? And to further that, when would the decision be made to replace uh, the undercarriage? Well, the decision to be replaced will be likely nowadays we try to get it at least a month before it's worn out so we can order the undercarriage. Um, it depends on the duty use of the machine. Uh, if it's a high production machine, then of course you you know you're gonna want to get that changed out quicker than than sooner than later. Um, can you rotate some machines around a little bit? Like in the landfills, we could take a unit from a more busy landfill and, and take it to a, a quieter one, and you detain a little bit less or a little bit more life because you don't have to spend it. So you try to carry it in maybe to your next budget. Uh, the uh, Again, we used to, uh, you know, a grouser height was used to be a good indicator, but now as you see dry joints on the on the rail, or you start seeing uh, cowbelling on all your rollers, all that starts to accelerate the wear of your rail or your chain. Some guys like to call it, uh, I call it the rail, just being old school, I guess. Um, so you got to look at, you know, where is your undercarriage sitting as a whole as well, right? Uh, gone are the days of doing a pad swap and a, and a, a flip kind of thing just because the cost of labor you know to do a pad swap say your grouser still look 50 percent, but your chains wore out well the cost of you to just change the pads onto a new rail and put them back on the cat for midlife you know it just doesn't work anymore it's, it just doesn't doesn't do the, the the labor cost is too much so i don't know if you've heard of any other guys that are still doing that i'd be curious if they are but we definitely don't do that anymore. We used to at one time, though. Probably some old school loggers or Yukon gold miners that um, don't have nice shops and they just make do with what they have. Yeah, no, I agree. No, and we talked about, you know, what are some of the things that we can do to help, you know, extend the life of that? Well, it starts with the operator as always does, right? Well, you could say it starts with the, the maintenance shop on purchasing a, a good undercarriage. You know, you can find undercarriages for cheaper than your OEM. OEM generally seems to get the best life uh, in Caterpillar, for uh, example, or uh, SMS or Komatsu. They seem to do a very good job, but they also come with a premium. Those undercarriages cost a little bit more money. You can find some, you know, off-brand undercarriages that are less money. And, uh, you know, those are the times when we think maybe the machine is going to be dispersed within a thousand hours or so. So we'll put one of those on so that the machine you know, has a good undercarriage on it when it goes for sale, because that's generally the first thing people look at is like a used car. First thing you look at is tires, right? Well, on a used dozer, one of the first things you look at is undercarriage, because you know that if it's wore out, you're going to be spending forty, fifty thousand dollars $50,000 on it, right? Um, but secondly, with your operator, you know, making sure that the tracks are cleaned every night, you know, not leaving it uh, set, set frozen. And then in the morning, when you get into it, 
you know, all not acts like like um, every cloth or, or files. That stuff just wears the metal down every morning. You keep doing that, takes a certain amount of life out of your undercarriage. So we really rely on our supervisors and operators to understand, you know, how important it is to keep your segs and your your sprockets and, and all your undercarriage uh, clean. Now, there's one piece in there I wanted to expand upon before we talk a bit more about different methods of, of wear on undercarriage is that resale value. And you mentioned that undercarriage is usually, or tires on a, on a car, are usually the, one of the first things that catch a person's eye. So from the equipment that you've you know seen be bought and, and, and sold, is undercarriage a big factor on the resale of that equipment? You betcha. Um, and even the brand undercarriage, you know, years ago we had a, a D10 undercarriage with a, you know, an off, I know it was a non OEM, undercarriage that we used on all our machines that you know we got good life out of them and we we're very happy with the product um but the the guy that wanted to buy the d11 didn't want to buy it because it didn't have a caterpillar undercarriage on it and the undercarriage was like really like it had 500 hours on it, it was like brand new but because it wasn't caterpillar he wasn't going to buy it because he felt that it was going to wear out sooner um so you know there is certain people that just like oil or grease they they get a certain brand and they feel that it's the better brand so to say that all my all the gear that we sell or send an auction has OEM undercarriage on it, I'm not going to lie to you. It probably doesn't because I'm not going to. No offense to anybody who's buying something from us, but I don't feel like supporting your company. I got to I got to look out for what's best for my P and L. So we'll put on a you know a Burko or a, a, a truck undercarriage, which is still good product. We run it. It all again. It all depends on what we're putting it on. Um, if you see no. Uh, We'll use a landfill, like for example. If you see no difference between the thirty thousand dollar undercarriage you bought from, say, a Burko, and the life is the same as the fifty thousand dollar undercarriage that you bought from Cat, well, of course you're going to go buy the Burko because it's better on your bottom line, right? Um, so there is also different uh, job factors that can also determine on what brand of undercarriage that you're going to put on. Now, is there any return? on investment by sending a machine to auction or just selling it privately and putting in like $50,000 in a new undercarriage is there, are you just getting your money out? You get your $50,000 out of the machine when it sells, or do you actually get a premium on that for having a machine that's ready to work? It's got a new undercarriage. Is is there any logic to that? You betcha there is. That's what the owners are looking for or the potential buyers are looking for a machine that could go right away. We, we sell some things privately and some things that we don't. If it's a high-hours machine, it's going to the auction, right? It's buyer beware. I'm not saying I sell junk. It might be just growing because of uh, it's high-hours, and it's, we we have a a benchmark or a threshold that we decide that hey, this is the machines here that we've had it long enough. We're either going to rebuild it or we're going to sell it. And if we're going to sell it, used dozer, it's either going to have 50% or better undercarriage on it, or I'm probably going to put one on there for the person to. Uh, to, you know the new the new potential buyer will capitalize because you will get the at least you'll get the cost and then maximize you know the sale of that machine and get a little bit better return. Do I say it always pays for the undercarriage? Nine out of ten times it usually does. That's interesting. You're the second person to to say that because there's a fellow on the Yukon that was selling out all his iron and he had some tens and uh, three sixty five excavators and he went and did all the undercarriage complete bogies idlers. Uh, pads, rails, it, the sprockets, the whole works. And uh, he's, he 
you just told me is like, you know, it's the, when someone looks at a piece of equipment, it's the money's in the undercarriage. And if they don't see it, then they usually walk. So he got his money back and I don't know if we got more, but uh, I definitely think there's merit to that uh, strategy. I agree. No, I agree. And, and we follow quite a bit. I know that we talk about it all the time. What's the undercarriage look like? And we'll either run it a little bit more if we can to the next sale. So we get a little bit more life out of it and then put the new one on for the next guy. Or we'll just say, hey, you know what, it's time to go. Or the whole thing is pretty much wore out. This is what we're going to get for it, and let's send it the way it is. But very rarely I'd say that we, uh, maybe one out of ten will we send a machine with tracks to the sale that are worn out. We'll generally look for something. Even if it means taking a midlife undercarriage off of a sister machine and putting it on that machine and putting a new undercarriage on our machine, which is a good strategy as well, and we've done that before. You know, you got to eat the labor a little bit because you're you're doing a, a little bit more labor than just doing one undercarriage. But nine times out of ten, you're going to get better value in the sale because you put that midlife undercarriage back on there for somebody else. Interesting. Now, speaking to to wear an undercarriage, um, what are some of the aspects that cause, or some of the the factors that cause uh, wear forward or reverse? Like, what results in more undercarriage on a dozer, for instance? Uh, speed. Uh, the faster that dozer goes, the faster all those components are turning, the quicker they'll wear out. Uh, material that you're in, sandier soils are are more abrasive than, you know, you would think the opposite, that you're in a boulder patch that's going to be harder on your undercarriage. Might be on your pads, but as far as rollers and, and idlers and things, it's not because you don't have that fine abrasive material going in there. You know, like if you're working in Glacier Rock or something in, in BC, Um uh, how they're taken care of for sure, you know, making sure that the idlers are being greased properly, that your operators are cleaning them properly, um, that your PM guys are checking and looking for those cowbells or looking for a dry joint on a rail to say that, you know, that that's not rotating. Um, a lot of people, I, I don't think there's a lot of system one undercarriage out there. Everybody had, uh, and I'm not sure if you're familiar with that term, Mac, but um, where the pins in the rail uh, would turn so they, they you know it wasn't a static joint and and they would create less resistance it was supposed to give you better fuel burn uh supposed to give you a, a enhanced undercarriage life and it did exactly the opposite um you, you know we we won't even put system one undercarriages back on anymore because they're more costly and we're not seeing the life out of them nor are we seeing the the, the you know the fuel savings there so even if the fuel savings was there you know, the cost of labor and undercarriage now almost offsets all that. Is system one where the idler actually sits inside the, the rail? I've That's seen correct. a few yeah. D6s with that. and was perplexed a little bit there. Yeah, That's that's correct. So that pin joint on the rail is now riding and it's it, it rotates. So when your idler hits that, it literally spins as well, which is supposed to, you know, but more moving parts, I think. So creates accelerated wear in my opinion is what we've seen so and it's a third third more cost for probably a quarter to a 16th less life interesting interesting i like your unfiltered perspective it's good it's it's refreshing well uh, you know we're all here for information right and i'm not trying to shoot any of our suppliers in the foot or anything and just being honest on what we find and what we see and the practices that we use and, and, you know, if it helps out some of our, you know, it's going to help our competitors, but all in all, our, our, I think our main goal is that we do want the earth to last a lot longer too, right? So less stuff going into the landfill and 
Uh, you know, even though we used to be in the landfill business, the more the better. Productions are up. <laughs> you know, it's all about the environment and what we can do for our kids and our grandkids. And anywhere where we can see less waste, I think uh, is a good thing, right? Precisely. I totally agree. Curious, forward or reverse, what results in more wear and undercarriage? Uh, reverse, because generally reverse is in higher speed and it's not pushing. Where when you're in forward, uh, you might say if there's some track spin, you might get a little bit more wear, but you're also doing a lot of your turns. You're not doing sharp turns with a blade full of dirt, right? You're usually doing more sharp turns when you're going into your next cut. So, you know, combination of speed, sharp turns, uh, and then that start, that quick stop and and quick start. So, yeah, all of a sudden you're out of reverse from third gear and into first gear and, and forward. You get a big bump there, right? You know, everything slaps around. So you start seeing some slapping. Um, you know, we don't even, and I'd have to question it, but I don't think we even turn segs anymore. There was a time where we used to, uh, we'll put fresh segments on, but we won't turn the segs. So you know how you kind of get that concave groove from, you know, pushing it forward all the time. And then the old timers used to flip their segments. So then what used to be reverse is now forward and you get some more life out of them. But again, with the cost of labor, if you're going to go in there and change a set of segments, you might as well change them with new ones. Right? But that's today. I don't know what a new set of segments is going to cost me tomorrow. <laughs> what about third gear? We talked about speed and, and, and sharp turning, but third gear, forward or reverse, what's... Yeah, we lock it out. Um, we don't see the offset. Uh, maybe the, the guys goes back to project versus math versus company math. So it might gain the pro- project some production, but the cost of the machine being down, replacing the undercarriage, uh, you know, the and, and all the costs, it, when you look at it as a whole, um, the productivity is a wash based on having the machine down sooner and not getting the life out of your undercarriage. And you, going back to an earlier point you made, you, you touched on a few materials that cause high abrasion, high wear on undercarriage. Uh, obviously, we've established that landfills are very high wear, but what else have you seen in, in, in your career in, in Calgary and before that? And you also mentioned the oil sands. What's the highest, yeah. what types of material cause the highest abrasion on undercarriage? Oil sands. Oil sands, for some reason, you can, your undercarriages up there just get chewed up like something else. And, and uh, you know, because it's sandy, but you think it's sand with oil in it, so it wouldn't be as abrasive, but it almost acts like it's a cutting lubricant, like for your, uh, hacksaw when you put oil on it, right? It helps cut better. Well, I think that kind of in reverse happens with the with an undercarriage up there where the oil acts as a and a, a you know accelerates the wear more than it it uh, lubricates to save the the undercarriage. Uh, of course, landfills um, working in any kind of water um, where you're in a real moist environment or ponds all the time because you generally get a lot of silt. Again, going back to that sandiness getting into the seals on your uh, chain getting into the seals on your rollers, all like the more the, and then it dries in there and there's areas that you can't see. And we actually took uh, on a waste handling package on dozers. There's actually what's called track guides and track guards that go down on the bottom that sort of protect your rollers. But we found that those guards actually acted as a deterrent because it would trap material in there that the operator couldn't get out with his track shovel and we noticed better roller life when we took the track guides off or the guards. Some guys call them guides, some guys call them guards. And the operator was then able to get that material out every night. We did see a, a little uptick in, in roller life. 
Interesting. Speaking of material packing in a tracks, I've seen in some cases on the larger track type tractors, there's a trapezoid cutout into the uh, the actual pads. And it's something to do with extruding material and preventing it from packing in uh, around, I guess, high wear components. Is there, is there, have you seen that before in, in some of what Whistle's doing? Yeah, we used to, uh, all our landfill machines had relief holes in them. Um, for a couple of reasons. A was to relief that packing of material out that would get in behind the pads and then trap around your chain. But it also, in a landfill, you want compaction. You don't want flotation um, because flotation means that you're floating on top of the garbage and it's not packing. So if you can get, you know, that's why you don't see a wide pad dozer in a landfill because you want that dozer to be really up to its belly pan and garbage. Because if you are, then, you know, that means the, the machine's doing some of that compacting for you and taking some of the work from the compactor away. Whereas vice versa, I have V6s that work in the, in the oil field or even in our underground uh, group, that are, or uh, here's a good one in uh, irrigation uh, with a lot of canal work. Well, of course, you're going to want a wide pad with no relief holes because you don't want the machine to sink out of sight. So certain applications, right? And we have the mix of all of them from ones with uh, all our track loaders all have clip grousers with uh, relief holes. And the clip grouser idea being that it takes, uh, gives our, our track uh, motors and our, our drives a little bit more life because, uh, you know, a sharper corner on a grouser pad is harder on your, uh, your components. Interesting. I think I've only seen clip grousers on enforcery applications. I thought there was yeah. a and couple of scenarios. You used to be able to buy them that way, and now they don't even sell them clipped anymore. You kind of got to just torture them yourself. Speaking of, of grousers, ice lugs or corks, as, as we would commonly refer to them, are they particularly used in winter? Are they good, bad for undercarriage? And what about when they're not used in winter, in, in summer or spring conditions? Are they good or bad for the undercarriage? Um, there's a few, few pros and cons. Of course, safety is number one and productivity number two while you grouser a machine. Landfills did a lot of grousering, uh, ice lugs, uh, or ice grousers, if you want to call them, um, just because they worked a lot of slopes and they needed that that stability. Um, we would just wear them off, though. Like some people would put them on, and if they were still there in the spring, they'd cut them off. I think they're doing the more of that because you don't have to put tires down on your trailer because they do chew up the deck of your trailer pretty good, mm-hmm. especially for a heavier machine. Um but it's really on application. Um, we've run dozers all winter long that, you know, they're on flat ground. They're just backfilling canals. So they really didn't need it. Um, whereas they're mostly when they're doing slope work is when they have some picks on them. What about shoveling tracks? Is that important in, in the overall picture of, of extending undercarriage life? First line of defense, Mac, very first line of defense. If you have a good operator that cleans his tracks out completely daily, um, you'll see probably a 10% uptick in, in the life of that undercarriage if you keep the same operator on it. And why so much in winter? Why is that important in winter? Frozen. Things, the dirt freezes in there and that frozen dirt just stays in there. You know, in the summer, it, it generally will fall out of there or it'll wash out of there or some new dirt will come in there. But in the wintertime, it just gets frozen in there like, uh, you know, it's concrete stiff, really. Um, and then, you know, it, it wears that way all day until it finally, you know, breaks itself free. And then same thing, it'll freeze solid if it doesn't move in the morning. Then you have an operator trying to break those tracks free. Well, now you're shock loading the entire system, which starts right from the drivetrain all the way out to the tracks. 
What are some of the other first lines of defense or other maintenance um, that should be done to protect undercarriage from premature wear, um, premature failure? You know, cut your cut the cowbells off of you. If you can't change your roller or an idler outrider, well, idlers for sure, watch your idler life and see that your idlers, you know, they all have a, a cannon on them to keep your tracks uh, tight. And if you see that you're getting to the end of that, um, definitely you want to make sure that you're either taking a link out of your rail if there's some undercarriage left, life left or getting an undercarriage replacement done. You know, a, sl- uh, a sloppy undercarriage, one that's not tight. Um, we have fuel loop truck operators, so, you know, part of their job is to make sure that they measure it as per the under- or as the OEM manufacturer states. And, and generally how that's done is uh, like usually just a, a pry bar or a straight edge across three grouser heights, and then you measure the, the middle grouser to see how low it's hanging. And if it isn't within that parameter, give it a few pumps of grease to tighten it up. Once it's tight, it's just like the chain on your bike, right? Your sprock heels and your dirt bike, you'll see your sprockets and everything start wearing a lot quicker if you don't keep that chain tight. Um, similar thing for, you know, operators usually do that. Um, in, in the bush, here they don't. They got the luxury of having a, a field lube man that will take care of that for them. But definitely those are some of the things that, the easy low-hanging fruit, I guess you could say. And speaking of extending uh, life, pin and bushing turn, what is that? And do you, does Whistle do that? And is there any merit to it? Yeah, no, we talked about that earlier, about the pin and bushing turn. And um, we found that in the old days when labor was a lot cheaper, that there was a lot, you know, because you know, when you're doing a pin and bushing turn, you're taking all your pads off, you're doing all, you know, everything comes off the, the machine. Um, we don't see that. And then you, you don't, you, that's in a system one undercarriage, everything rotates. So there isn't really a front and a back or a good side, bad side. Um, we haven't done a pin and pushing turn in probably 15 to 20 years. Just don't find it. Don't see the value in it. Cost of the machine being down midlife or mid 2000 hour point or whatever. And then all the labor to it. Uh, we just run her till she's done, you know, maybe put a set of rollers in, take a link out, tighten it up, but, We'll never do a pin and pushing turn. And some might argue that that's the wrong thing, but I can't see it paying. We've tried it. And you've mentioned before when it comes to OEM and, and aftermarket, you're you're leaning towards the the aftermarket side for, for most of your undercarriage rebuilds and out, outfits? Um, again, it uh, it seems like it might be the steel too. And time of year, um, we've had some great success with, um, our non-OEM and we have great success with our OEM right now. We've been buying a lot of OEM because the pricing is there. I think the, uh, the non-OEM brands are, are seeing some huge increase in their costs. So when you start seeing uh non-OEM versus an OEM and they're almost, you know, $1,500 to $500 difference, a lot of times we'll just eat the extra $1,500 and put the OEM in. I've- I've got one question here that um, I'm wondering if I can stump you with, if you're, if you're ready. Yeah, shoot. On D8, D9, D10, that size track type tractor, uh, top carrier rollers, why uh, do some dozers have them and why do some dozers not have them? You know, some people think that that middle carrier roller is, is just impeding right? It, it, it's extra wear. It's another roller. And I've seen it too. We've all had, you know, I've seen guys take the, the center pedestal out, um, thinking that it's, you know, added resistance, um, more stuff to take care of. It's the engineers put it in there for a reason, in my opinion, and we've never taken one out. I've seen it, but uh, we've never done it. 
I think that that's going to accentuate your your rail wear just because now you have that rail hanging such a long distance. So you're going to see some sag there, I think, over time, which puts, you know, added stress on your pins and bushings. Um, less resistance, I think. Easier to clean, for sure. Uh, you know, some of it is, is, is a lot of dirt packs up in around there sometimes, especially in muddy material. And, and, and that'll create that. So but as we've never done it. So to say why they're doing it, I don't know, Matt. But uh, I, to me, I, I think if it's supposed to be there, uh, I wouldn't take it out myself. Like you, I've seen both with a roller, without a top carrier roller. And I was actually told by a Komatsu guy, and, and he says that the top carrier roller on those high drive track type tractors is for different wear applications. So it actually allows for more lubrication of the pins and bushings. And hmm. that's what he told me. And I, I believe it was in underfoot conditions where there's not a lot of wear it actually wants to move those pins and bushings more through just the 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 rails going over the top carrier roller that, again there's more would, there's more wear but it makes sense if it's a certain underfoot condition yeah i'd have to agree i'd have to agree. Hey, that's what you say applications and equipment making all the world in the difference what we do in calgary might not work in lethbridge right what we do in leduc might not work in calgary so, you know, we see those after some trends, but, you know, if you were just to buy three brand new D6 dozers and start business in them three regions, how would you know until you've done one or two undercarriages, right, to start asking some of those questions? Exactly. I'm curious, we talked last time about Whistle's in-house rebuild program, and you mentioned there was a certain percentage allocated to your in-house techs, and then also a certain percentage allocated to uh, those from finning sms brandt uh, great west equipment whoever it may be is that the same with undercarriage are you allocating a certain percentage of that work to a professional from a dealership and a certain percentage of that work to a professional in-house you know i guess you could say a little bit to the dealer because you know they assemble everything for us so it's not like we buy separate rails pads and all that so you know uh, it hits the track bench first so every undercarriage will hit the track bench. So I'm saying that's probably, you know, a 16th to a quarter of what the cost of your undercarriage is, but that's also included in the cost of your undercarriage. Uh, as far as replacing it, unless it was like a, a rebuild, even on this D7, um, you know, Finning and Artex will work together to put the tracks on, probably just because Finning's still here and he's, you know, actively working to finish that machine. But if it was just a standard track change or replacement, or undercarriage replacement, we'd perform all that in-house. We'd have our welders go through the track frames, the hard bar. And, and generally, when you're doing an undercarriage, you're going to find a track frame that needs this or a hard bar that needs line boring. And so it turns out to be not just an undercarriage repair. It turns out to be somewhat of an undercarriage rebuild, I guess you could say. And that goes back to what we talked about, you know, running your undercarriage out to the, to the you know, we used to pride ourselves that, yeah, the, the, the track pad bolts are higher than the grouser pads. But then we'd have to spend another $20,000 on fixing track frames and hard bars and everything else that we wore out because of it. So we've learned our lesson. We, you know, we get our OEM uh, manufacturer, most time it's spinning uh, or SMS. They'll come out, they'll do a measurement for us, let us know where we're at. They'll do that every quarter or every bi biannually, depending on where the light's at. Um, you know, if it's a brand new undercarriage, well, I'm not going to get him to come and measure it for a year, right? But as we get closer to its, its end of life, you start measuring a little bit more so you can see exactly where you're at. And a lot of times a decision might be made to 
replace an undercarriage just a little bit early, but that's when we're down and the, the, we don't need the machine. So, you know, here's a good time. You know, the productivity of the machine not being lost versus taking the undercarriage down a little bit earlier while we're doing it while the machine's parked. So that sort of works in our favor as well, right? So there's always, when it comes to undercarriage, it's not just cut and dry. There's always a certain factor of machines either going for sale, it's parked because it's down seizing or it's freeze up. You know, there, there's always something that'll play in the factor. I don't think you ever do any undercarriage the same way because there's always different factors. You mentioned measuring undercarriage wear. Are they still using uh, ultrasonic um, devices to measure that, or is it all with a ruler and, and certain? I believe the no, cat actually has a gauge. They got, they got ultrasonic devices and everything, and and that goes over you know a lot on your uh, pin and bushing wear, uh, grouser height. Of course, that's just standard with you know measurement. But yeah, they got a whole neat little toolkit. That one thing I've never really taken the time to do and, and, and spend some time with our suppliers doing it, but it's an art as well, but they also get it wrong sometimes too. <laughs> one, one final piece here before I wrap up when the undercarriage is actually getting repaired in the shop, there's obviously a lot more than just a lot more to it than just buying the new rollers, the new sprockets, the new pads, rails, uh, idlers. What about the actual track frame and the, uh, the, the cannon, so to speak, what, what gets done to that? Is there any welding or any, um, measurements taken? Yeah, there will always be a bunch of welding because you always seem to find some, some. and I mentioned the hard bar that, that mounts to the inside of a track frame. Those If those bushings get beat out, there's usually a little metal on metal in there. So you're line boring those mounting points. Uh, you might have a roller that started oblong. Uh, you know, uh, it was loose. A couple bolts come loose and oblong the hole. So you got to fill those out and re-drill them. Uh, sometimes final drives, we're still in the habit of where we well, we tack our segments. Uh, once we put the segments on, we still tack them. I know it's a pain in the ass when you've got to go change them, but that ensures that we don't, if, if something doesn't get torqued properly or we have some segment bolts that come loose, that we don't oblong the holes in the in the uh, final drive because it's a lot harder to, you know, more costly to replace a final drive than it is to cut a couple of uh, welded segments off. So we're still in the, we're, we're still in the habit of doing stuff like that. Um, Track frames and on landfill machines, they used to just take a beating, right? They're wear thin. Uh, you'd be seeing some of the cannon on some of the sides. So, you know, we used to have to put some patches on them where we would wear through. So we did see, you know, some, on the, especially on the 25 and 30,000 uh, hour machines. Uh, but that's no different than compactors where we've wore holes through the, the, the diff housings too, right? Just because those things are dragging in the garbage all the time or MSW. I have seen, speaking, just touching quickly on that point about welding sprocket segments together, I have seen that before, and I thought it was only on larger uh, track-type tractors where they actually weld the segments together, so it's one ring, if you will, like that on, a, I guess, an excavator. I think they come like that. Yeah, and we do them D6 and up. I don't think we do them so much on the little ones, but D6 and up we do them. It gives us a peace of mind that it's not going to come loose, right? Interesting. Okay. I never understood what that was for, but now I know it's to keep it from oblonging out the holes if it does come loose. And that's pretty common. Happens more than you'd think. Interesting. Well, Greg, it was great to get you back on here chatting undercarriage. Again, I really appreciate your time and uh, your insight. It's always, always look forward to uh, chatting and, and hoping I can get out this way out in Calgary this year and, uh, and see you again. And we'll, we'll see how the year unravels, I guess. 
Yeah, well, we'd love to have you, Mac, and uh, appreciate all the posts that you do for us and, and some of the gear that you put on your website for us and truly enjoy uh, being a guest on your podcast and look forward to the next one. Yeah. Okay. We'll leave uh, Greg's details again down below. I think we'll leave it at that. Thanks again, Greg. And thank you uh, to everyone for listening. Yeah. Thank you, Mac and uh, listeners.